What up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 103 of Combo's Court, and I am Combo. Go rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button right on your Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to Combo's Court. Combo Nation, man. We're out here. <laughs> Today's show, Jared Weiss of The Athletic joins in. Follow Jared on Twitter at Jared Weiss MBA. That's J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. You know you could follow me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Jared Weiss of The Athletic, welcome to Combo Score, man. How you feeling? Feeling great right now. Must be busy, busy times, preseason. Uh, there's not much time to sleep these days when uh, the NBA has an international crisis going on 24-7. Oh, can you speak to that? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, about the China thing? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's – I just started my job. So <laughs> it's, it's – it, what's so tricky is so basically, you know, China is what's, what uh, is generally considered a hybrid regime which means that it's not quite a full authoritarian regime, but it's not a full democracy. And it leans more towards being an authoritarian dictatorship, essentially. It's a one-party system. You know, there's not a ton of represent- representation from the people. It's really just the one party controlling everything. So they don't really believe in, or at least the government does not really allow for full transparency and freedom of speech and things of that nature. While obviously in America, we have pretty much the the biggest freedom of speech rights in the world and so what Maury said was something that you know millions and millions of people in the united states say all the time um but when he is doing that as the nba is coming to china china is going to take significant offense to that and you know joe sai put out that letter rightly saying that it is a third rail issue in that country it's probably just about the biggest third rail issue in that country along with uh the sovereignty of tibet um, the thing that Joe Sai, the Brooklyn Nets owner, said that I thought was ridiculous was that he said in his open letter that he posted on Facebook that the 1.4 billion people of China are all in agreement on this. For one, there are two large areas in China, Tibet and the Uyghur territory out in Western China, that are essentially um, under a, some people consider it a genocide, some people consider it a massive political persecution. Either way, they're being persecuted by the state of China, and they certainly do not agree with China's principles on sovereignty and imperialism. So that part of the statement there is already ridiculous. And then it's just kind of ridiculous to think to say that every single person exactly. in the country agrees on a significant political issue. I mean, look at the U.S. The U.S. has massive polarization. And while Chinese society probably is less politically polarized than the U.S. is, probably because freedom of expression is not as strong there, but also because of just having them actually just having uh, maybe a, a smaller range of different political beliefs on the political spectrum. Either way, it, it's just ridiculous for him to say that everybody in China agrees on this. Um, yeah. 
not to mention you're including like babies in that number. Like, come on, man, just like don't, <laughs> don't put that part in there. There were a couple of things that I thought were kind of ridiculous in his statement. Um, even if his statement is reasonably portraying the views of people from China um, or the majority view in China. So, you know, the Chinese, um, the Chinese uh, television network put out a statement saying that um, credit or that uh, commenting on China's sovereignty is not within the bounds of freedom of expression and should be condemned. That's just not true. Freedom of expression means full freedom of expression. And then if you want to take that a little bit further uh, and try to contextualize it to where that statement is a little less ridiculous, you could look at it in the context of that the NBA as a private organization does put some limits on freedom of expression. Um, you're not allowed to right. criticize the refs. You're not supposed to criticize the league. So, you know, there's other things that they punish players for. It's not things that have human rights consequences to it, but it's things that have consequences to the business and the operations of the NBA. So you could say that that is precedent for limiting political uh, freedom of expression in the NBA because it so clearly materially harms the NBA's business to express that. But the NBA is a very progressive organization and Silver is a very progressive leader. And so he seems to be taking the stance, which I think is important for him back home, which is what really matters more than the Chinese market because it is the core market of the sport and it's where the sport is played, that he's going to stand by the American ideal of freedom of expression and allow people to make political criticisms as long as they're not you know, beyond the pale of threatening inappropriate things of that nature. So I think Silver's handling what is the most difficult situation imaginable in business and sports, uh, or just about the other other ones that are worse than that. But one of the worst situations you're going to have to handle, I think he's handling it pretty well after maybe. Right. It's interesting because from a basketball standpoint, uh, China and the Rockets always had a, you know, a great relationship, Yao Ming. And they tried to keep it going with Jeremy Lin uh, just from a basketball standpoint, you know. I mean, that can fall apart really quickly with the right, way right, the Chinese right. government reacts to criticism. Yeah. Um, as we saw, you know, it's that's and and this is not the first time this has happened. This has happened with several American or, you know, or, um, you know, Western companies in the past. This is not the first time this has happened. So, um, you know, I'm not surprised by the way that they're reacting. I am surprised that they're taking such a hard line right. stance to cut off all these business relations. And, you know, it's, it's hard to tell from. Uh, from my perspective, sitting here in Boston, Massachusetts, how much of that is driven by the government versus how much of that is a response to an actual like large swath of the public. Let's shift to basketball. Let's pivot to the Lakers. Um, the preseason game, man, I, I learned a lot from it. I know you, you have to take preseason with a grain of salt, but I think AD is, you know, he's going to be in the public eye now. He's going to get a lot of attention. What I looked for in that game, I really wanted to see how LeBron was moving, um, how he was just how fluid he was looking athletically. And um, I thought he looked really. I thought he looked really good. I thought he looked really good. Um, AD really made. <laughs> he made the Warriors look like kids out there, man. He 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 just did whatever he wanted to. Um, and to me, really watching them actually on the court, like not just looking at the roster, I think during the playoffs, uh, Danny Green's going to be the X factor, man. If he can knock down shots late in the playoffs, I think the Lakers have a great chance to win the championships. What did you take away from the one preseason game? So yeah, I mean. I, I, AD is just, he has this kind of freedom right. that he's never really had before playing next to LeBron, right? Because he just, he, I think it allows him to be more physical and more aggressive to the hoop because he doesn't, he doesn't have the defense loading up below him to force him into those step back jumpers. So I think he's just going to, he's going to look probably better than ever at first. 
and then teams are going to figure out how they can stay underneath the, you know, like stay below the free throw line to form a wall against them. So the Lakers probably early on are going to put yeah. on an offensive field show. I mean, field day. it's going to be pretty exciting to watch. Uh, yeah. Danny Green is the third best player on the team, I think. So he's the huge X factor and his streakiness and his shooting is probably going to be um, you know, pretty clear. I, I bet if you look at their schedule and their wins and losses, and then you look at his three point percentage over those periods of time, they should right. wake up. Yeah, you know what? Thinking about it, you here. might be right about Danny Green. The thing is, though, they're so deep that there's so many players that could be that third guy, you know. But you're right. Are they deep, though? Yeah, I think isn't that the concern I, from, with them is that they're not it, deep? It's, uh, you're right. They have you know, a lot of names. Sometimes you just sure. look at the names and you kind of like it's nostalgic. You think back to their prime. You know, and you look at the roster, like this is a great roster, but it's not, they're not really, they're on like on the wrong side of 30. And you know what I mean? And you got to look at it a little bit differently. Okay, let's shift to the Celtics, man. They lost Hawford. They lost Kyrie. Um, signed Kemba, Kemba, but he's not the offensive talent that Kyrie is. I think we could all agree on that. Um, do you see a scenario where the Celtics will actually be a better team this season? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with the comparisons of Kyrie to Kemba. Uh, based on the way that they performed in the regular season last year, I don't think there was a drastic difference. I mean, you talk about efficiency numbers all you want, but they can pretty much get comparable shots. They can they can tear about, apart the defense in comparable ways. So I don't think that's I think it's a side grade rather than a downgrade there. When Do you, you really? Consider, I mean, I think yeah. Kyrie. I think Kyrie is special when it comes to offense, man. I think he's just like on a different. No, no offense to uh, to Ken, but he's great. But Kyrie just he could create things deep in the playoffs or in the, even in the regular season that I don't, I haven't really seen any other player his size can, especially around the rim. Exactly. So that's, that was what I was about to get to. For one, I would give Steph Curry and then Chris Paul his prime, probably yeah. a bit of credit there. But so um, they, and maybe Darren Fox in the next year or two, but so, so they, um, that's the, I think the big difference maker. And we just don't, we haven't seen Kemba in the playoffs consistently enough to really know, but we have seen, Kyrie for most of his career, not last year in the second round, which was a disaster, but most of his career has been able to elevate his game and be one of the few guards that can consistent that can, you know, pretty consistently dominate in the playoffs, especially compared to like Curry. Curry has struggled, has been inconsistent in the playoffs a lot, but it's probably more health than anything, but a lot of it is scheming. Uh, the NBA is in a tricky place right now where point guards are dominating the regular season offense, but then you get to the playoffs and you can up the physicality on defense and the point guards become more marginalized. And that's when the wings show that they're still the most valuable player. And so Kemba, we just don't know if he's going to be able to do that. I think Kyrie, despite the kind of crazy hecticness of last year has demonstrated over his career that he is that guy that can break that mold. And we just don't know yet with Kemba, but as far as the regular season is concerned, I, I think it's pretty much a side grade. I don't think there's a huge – I don't think there's a – the margin between the two of them is small enough that it's whatever trade-offs that you have in capability with Kemba, he makes up for with consistency and positive leadership and not going rogue a lot of the time, which was an issue with with Kyrie. So um, that's – I think that's pretty much a wash right there. For them, the, the big loss is Horford and – you know, Hayward looks like he's ready to step into the role that Horford had last year, where he's the glue guy of the offense that's making a lot, that's kind of like the secondary ball handler of the offense and is running a lot of pick and roll, doing a lot of the, you know, ball reversal stuff of that nature. Um, so I think that they, Hayward, compared to where they were last year, where Hayward was just not a, a consistent contributor, I think that Hayward steps in to fill a lot of that role that Horford had. But there's still, because they just lost Horford and they don't have 
that five man up there that can kind of do everything. They're definitely weaker in theory than they were last year. But last year, the team that was in theory and the team that actually went out there for all 82 games and then the however many games I was in the playoffs, 11 or so, whatever, um, that those, those, those teams just did not line up at all. So I think you're going to, the ceiling is probably lower on this year's team, but the floor is much higher. What are you seeing from Gordon? Like just in terms of the, you know, biomechanics, the way he's moving, the way he's playing. I mean, you're up close, you're, you're in Boston. What do you see? Will we see the Utah jazz Gordon Hayward soon? It, it certainly seems like that's, that's pretty much uh, what we're going to be getting. Okay. Um, I think it's there's I mean so much of it is the mentality. There's a level of aggression that's there that just wasn't there last year. Um, his will, his, him inviting the contact, which was a big part of his game before he got hurt, seems to be back now. And that was something that was just a big issue for him last year. Um, and there's just there's a bit there's like more torque in the way that he drives. Like he just he accelerates with yeah. more power. Yeah, so much he's, of that is mental t- too. Just you know coming off an injury. For sure, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And I think it's just that. When you get hurt, you come back, it takes, you know, it's not like you, your rehab brings you back to being a full power, like your rehab to be able to be stable. And then the power starts to come over the course of the year and people just forget it takes you usually a year of playing to really get that strength back. And so I think he's just, he's finally at that point and he's finally had an off season where he could really just work on being his best self rather than working on just trying to get back to being himself. Yeah. And if he takes that role, it'll, you know, the role that Al Horford, as you mentioned, had, it'll, it'll create spacing for the Celtics because, you know, Gordon operates more in the perimeter. So I think that's a good look for the Celtics as well. For sure. For sure. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's shift to something so much more important, man. Um, how's Taco handling his cult-like following? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the Taco thing is, is tricky because Taco, like, like, let's be real. Everybody is obsessed with Taco because of the size. Because, you know, there's a bit of the circus act element to see him and that's why people are excited by him and i don't think that's it but that's a big part of it but the other part of why people love him especially the people that know him is that he's a very smart and very sweet guy and he's and he's funny too and i think it's just that when you when you're his size and you have a dynamic personality and you have a warm personality that just it just it's such a surprise coming coming from that person that it has a bigger impact than than any than like kemba who is you know, my, my height, who has a pretty similar personality. Yeah, yeah. It's so, yeah. So, yeah, people people love Taco because of it's it's a unique show to, uh, to see from him. But the people that know him love him because he really is that guy. He's a hard worker. He is so, he, he's, um, he has a compassion and empathy to him that makes him very relatable. And uh, I think that people will probably get to know him more and they'll start to appreciate him for just the guy that he is and the player that he is. And the fact that he's like still really new to the game and is improving a lot year to year just because of yeah. how new he is to this. To There's- that point, I've seen – like I was in Vegas some league, watched a few games. Um, he looked like – and I watched the preseason highlights. I didn't get to see the full game. But he looked like he's improved since the summer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for him, I think – he just because he's gotten so few reps. I mean, kind of comparing to Hayward, because he's gotten so few reps in his career at this point, and because the the caliber of coaching that he's experiencing is is jumping so dramatically. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's gonna he's he's gonna make rapid improvements. And compared to where he was when I saw him just at the beginning of the offseason around draft time, I've seen a lot of improvements in his footwork, in his body control. 
Um, you know, I think when he first got drafted, he couldn't really handle scoring over an NBA post defender. And now we're seeing him in that first preseason game show that he has that capability now. And that's just um, a plus because I mean, we, we weren't even expecting that from him, you know, this early. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think you're expecting him to put in the ball, the ball in the basket somehow. They really <laughs> want him to be a, a role man. They don't want to have him trying to, you know, duck in and post guys nah, up yeah. a ton. Yeah. Um, just because I think where he – where he's most effective because you know, guys with a lot of power can leverage him out of position and make things tough for him. What makes him really dangerous is if, if he's rolling off of the screen, you just throw that ball as high as you can up to him. He's going to get it. Yeah, he, don't, he doesn't have to jump. He doesn't have finish. to jump. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and he has he, – he moves just well enough to be able to pull that off. Right. Like, you know, you I think you could play him in spots like a Boban, but he definitely moves better than Boban, doesn't shoot as well as Boban, but it, it'll be interesting to see how he'll be used this season. Yeah, I think that's a big thing is he does he does move a little bit better than Boban. Boban is a he's done a pretty incredible job, I think, making himself a viable player in the league. Most definitely. He like he moves in a he, he moves in a very unique way. It's like a kind of like a sliding motion yeah. uh, of sorts, which makes him which is great because most of his motions are not gonna be running down the court. Most of his motions are going to be, you know, rolling or defensive sliding, stuff like that. So it it works very much to what his role is. And I think Taco is still learning how to move like that. And probably, hopefully, we'll get a chance to spend some time with Boban at some point, maybe next summer or something like that, to learn more about how to move at that size sustainably in the league without getting hurt. Yes, yeah, thing on Taco, but actually shifting to Jason, you had a tweet about Taco, and at the end of the tweet, uh, you said it might be time to trade Tatum. I know it's a joke, but is there any truth in your, in your, in your jest? No, no, no. <laughs> right. even like some of Tatum's people were like, "What the hell, man!" I'm like, come on, it's obviously a joke. Like the joke is that Tatum is seen as the future of the team, and now that Taco and Javante Green are playing so well, they're the new future of the team. So no, it's just a, it's just a bit. I like, I do over over the top sarcasm a lot of the time, where you would think everybody gets it because it's so ridiculous and it's obviously a joke. Right. Unfortunately, that's not how things work. All right, I, I'm glad you cleared the air here. All right, I want to shift to the yeah. D League. Interestingly. Um, I like I like sure. I like what they're doing with the free throw uh, with the one for two. I think it'll speed up the game. I know the traditionalists won't like it. Uh, I honestly, if it was me, if it was my decision, I would put it in the M- well. First of all, I would test it and see how it goes in the G League. But I would put it in the NBA. But I would keep the last two minutes of the first half and the last two minutes of the second half to the regular free throw rule of shooting two. But what are your thoughts on the D League trying this out? Uh, I love that. I love how the G League trying it out for sure. I mean, that's yeah. It's great that they're using it as a as an incubator to test out different rules and different game structures and things of that nature. I I hope they get super creative even. Um, I don't know how I feel about the rule. I like them. I mean, I, I don't care a ton about shortening the games. We just saw in that first Celtics preseason game that what really what really made the game feel like it took too long was that. Uh, there were two coaches challenges on the exact same type of play yeah. at the end of the game. And that took like five minutes. Yeah, that's like, ridiculous. Felt like people, yeah. Everybody was like, Oh my God, like, come on, get this over with. Yeah. And so um, I, I love that that's a feature now. And when you think about, it might be annoying, but think about how many calls at the end of games have destroyed franchises even. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. You know, there's so many, there's so many plays where we could go back on and say, if there was a coaches challenge, that would have changed the entire course of NBA history. Doesn't it even out in the long run if, you, if both coaches don't have challenges, theoretically? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not that it doesn't even out. It's just that it's not right. Okay. And yeah, you got to get it. You got it. You want to get it right. Yeah. You know, it's like 
Look at imagine if they if um if the Saints could have challenged that pass interference penalty last year. The penalty that has like destroyed the entire city. Yeah, that that one t- so, that one time it could work, but for the rest of the time that's just slowing down games. I mean, well, who cares? The game's almost over. It's it's clearly worth it, right? right? Okay, because it's so important that it's worth stopping the game for. It's not worth it in the preseason game, but in a regular season game or especially a playoff game, it is worth it. But I'm sorry to answer your question about the free throws. Um, you know what? Sure, especially because they're. I would probably move the. I would have the requirement for both free throws be at least at the five minute mark. I think two minute mark, um, or at least in the fourth quarter, at least a five minute mark, because that's when those free throws start to have significant pressure to them. What's going on with the NBA heights, Jared? Like everybody's shorter than they really are. It's going crazy. There's memes, there's lists. I'm just trying to figure this all out. Oh yeah. People just don't understand or they weren't paying attention before. Uh, all heights were yeah. previously listed as in shoes, right? And the NBA is just changing it to in socks because every other height in America is measured in socks. Yeah, but isn't that and bad for marketing? I mean, who cares? Uh, who cares really? I would like, think what, would care. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I, I don't know how it. I don't know how it affects the marketing. I mean, yeah. I guess I guess it's a guy somewhat more marketable if he's over seven feet right, versus right. six eleven. Right. But it doesn't it doesn't make that much of a difference. See, I think the only guys I really care are just the guys being embarrassed about having their real height revealed. But right. um, you know, it's but every single person's height, if you want to put it in historic context, just add it one point two five to one and a half inches, whatever makes you feel more comfortable. So that's what um, Draft Express has found was the average difference between uh, height in socks and height in shoes over the last like 25 years or so. Most insoles give you about a, a point, you know, 1.25 to one and a half inches. Yeah, I mean, Draymond's my height. It's incredible how great of a help defender he is at my height. Hey, you're, you're a pretty tall dude, apparently. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I got lucky. Jared, man, thanks for being here. You're always welcome back on the show. Where can we find you? Find me on Twitter, <laughs> Jared Weiss, MBA. You can read my stuff on The Athletic. Um, podcasting at The Daily Ding, which will be starting up in a couple weeks uh, once the regular season kicks off. Thanks, Jared. You're always welcome back on the show. Talk soon. Awesome. Thank you for having Anytime. me. Anytime. Thank you for listening to episode 103 of Combos Court. Big shouts to Jared for joining in. We appreciate you. Share this episode with a friend. Leave a five-star rating and a friendly comment right on your Apple Podcast app or leave a review wherever you listen to Combos Court. Also, man, take a screenshot of this episode. Post it on your IG stories. Tag me at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. I'll repost it. Be on the lookout for episode 104. Combo out.